The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good Monday morning, everybody. This is Squawk Box. President Trump has signed orders to extend crisis unemployment measures after talks between Republicans and Democrats collapse without agreement on a rescue plan. This is the money that they need. This is the money they want. And this gives them a great incentive to go back to work. So this was much more than was originally agreed. TikTok and Twitter in talks. The social media giant reportedly makes a move on the Chinese-owned video app as TikTok prepares to sue the Trump administration over the U.S. ban. Lebanon's prime minister says the country will hold early elections as protests erupt across Beirut, calling for government accountability over the explosion that killed over 150 people. Saudi Aramco suffers a 73% drop in second quarter profit, but the CEO says the worst is over, sending oil prices higher in early trade. Well, it's a controversial move, but President Trump has now signed four new executive orders in a bid to help support the U.S. economy. This after White House officials and congressional Democrats failed to reach a deal over a new stimulus package. Trump's actions include a federal evictions ban, a payroll tax suspension and student loan relief. He also brought down the level of jobless benefits, a key sticking point in negotiations to $400 a week. The president defended the move, arguing the previous unemployment assistance of $600 a week was a, quote, disincentive for people to go back to work. No, it's not a hardship. This is the money that they need. This is the money they want. And this gives them a great incentive to go back to work. So this was much more than was originally agreed. The 600 was a number that was uh, there. And as you know, there, were dif- there was difficulty with the 600 number because it really was a disincentive. Democrats hit out at President Trump's orders, calling them unconstitutional. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi tweeted the actions were meager adding Republicans must compromise over a relief package. Let's have a quick look at the uh, futures and what conclusions uh, they're drawing about the uh, announcements uh, from the president. Well, the implied open at this point is we will start the trading session uh, 78 points higher on the Dow. But how significant are these new arrangements? Kaylin Birch is a global economist at the EIU and joins us with analysis. Kaylin, good to see you this morning. Uh, just give us your first read then on President Trump's actions. How useful will these uh, moves be in supporting the economy? Mm. Well, first take, this really is how Trump has governed the entirety of his first term. It's largely been through executive order after his administration struggled to get through any sort of agreement with Democrats in Congress. So what we're seeing feels exceptional, but it's really just the continuation of the way that this administration has managed to govern thus far. And in terms of the effectiveness, I think at the moment, a lot of it is wrapped up in the confusion around how these measures would actually be 
uh, put in place, because typically only Congress has any control over spending. Trump has effectively said he's going to extend a federal emergency spending plan by up to six months and has required states to pay into it for those new unemployment benefits. This is a very new sort of world. So I think at least the next week or two, we're going to be caught up in controversy and confusion as to what this actually means for Americans. I mean, it does seem as though this uh, is less stimulus than was previously available, obviously, particularly when you look at the the level of uh, payments to uh, Americans um, who are furloughed or likely to have lost their jobs at this point. Um, We also got some detail on the non-farm payroll on Friday. If you look at this in the round, is it fair enough to conclude that the American economy is still seeing a moderation in growth rates at this stage and we are still some way away from uh, a very obvious recovery in activity? Oh, absolutely. Um, I think we did see um, the bounce back in June that would be anticipated once COVID-19 regulations and restrictions were started to be lifted and people could start to move about consume in the way that kind of looks a bit more like pre-COVID times. We would have seen a boost in June and we did and we saw more than 4 million jobs added on net and a kind of a rebound in consumer activity, etc. That was all well to be expected. But the fact that it's already petered out in July, so we saw a net of 1.8 million jobs added, that's pretty impressive. I mean, it's still positive growth, but it's a fraction of what we saw last month. That reflects the fact that we already have some restrictions going back in place in many states that saw rise in COVID-19 case numbers. And it means that the numbers for Q3 are not going to be very impressive. Um, And to a final point about kind of we have to think about the U.S. in terms of consumers. Consumer spending is 70 percent of U.S. GDP. So the extent to which people can move about, can spend, feel comfortable spending, have enough savings to spend will determine really how the entirety of the U.S. economy looks later this year. Um, And we did see, although... Republicans were saying that the unemployment benefit was a disincentive to return to work and it was not being kind of productive. I think we're we're really too soon to be thinking about incentives to return to work because at the moment, so many sectors are still kind of feeling the the decimation that came from COVID-19 restrictions. Um, And even now, we've seen a very high savings rate. So households that have disposable income can't spend it because travel is not possible, normal consumption is not possible, or they don't want to spend it because we're facing this very uncertain economic future. And I think we still have several more months of that to go. What seems to be particularly troubling is is just the decline we're seeing in the participation rate, uh, particularly in that key 25 to 54 age range. Does that suggest that there are those who are just becoming disillusioned with the limited opportunities they see and they are voluntarily taking themselves out of the workforce? Yes, definitely. And I think we've already lost effectively a decade of work in that regard in terms of job losses and bringing those in who were on the margins of the workforce, um, who previously had been hit by the global financial crisis and the downturn related to that. And it took really the better part of a decade to start to reduce those kind of segments of the of the labor market, people who were disillusioned and had been enticed back in by the fact the economy was so good up until this January. Um, and, and now we're back down to levels that we were seeing kind of in the early 2000s, which is which is definitely a worrying concern. And especially considering that the jobs that are most vulnerable to kind of long-term loss are going to generally be those that are kind of high contact intensity, 
food service, kind of uh, anything kind of involved in the services industry, and those industries will be the slowest to recover. So those already somewhat insecure jobs that took some tempting people back into the labor market are now going to be the most kind of the longest hit, if you will, by this crisis. And it is a major concern for what the participation rate will look like even in the next five years. Those jobs in particular, as you mentioned, are very sensitive to lockdowns at a state level as a result of uh, spiking uh, coronavirus cases here. Um, Five million cases now in the United States. Kaylin, as we look at the different approaches that states are taking, is there any reason to believe President Trump's optimism in various interviews that he feels that actually now America is on top of this? Being on top of the crisis still feels quite a way away. And the fact of the matter is, in the U.S., we've always seen a patchwork kind of uh, impact of the coronavirus. States have largely been left to develop their own strategies for contact tracing, um, for procuring necessary supplies, and deciding when to impose and lift restrictions. And that means that we've we faced a patchwork rollout of the virus as well. Um, countries, or rather states um, that were most heavily affected in the beginning have started to see a resurgence of kind of to, to have their health systems respond only to have the virus then roll onto other areas. And I'd be very concerned then as we do see kind of, again, this patchwork lifting and imposing of regulations and on the whole, a lower rate of, of testing until very recently than in many other countries means that we have several months before we really start to see that positive rate. So the rate of tests that come back positive for COVID-19 start to decline below that 5% level. The U.S. is currently around 8%. Uh, that would imply the U.S. is actually on top of this disease. Kaylin, good to see you this morning. Thanks for helping us with the analysis. Kaylin Birch, global economist for the EIU. Uh, we talked a bit about the non-farm payrolls number. Let's just re revisit some of the details here. The US economy added almost 1.8 million jobs in July. That's down from a record increase in the previous month, but it was above estimates. Steve Leesman breaks down the details. The government reporting a better than expected gain in jobs for the month of July, but it still represented a slowing from the strong rebound that we saw in May and June. 1.763 million jobs created, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. That's against an estimate of one and a half million. The unemployment rate declining to 10.2%, but it would have been 11.1% if not for uh, people being misclassified uh, an ongoing problem that the Bureau has had. Average hourly earnings rising by 0.2%. Rick Reeder in a commentary from BlackRock wrote, despite today's solid jobs report, a more sober reality in terms of hiring will begin to settle in. But it's also reality that will keep the Federal Reserve on hold when it comes to interest rates for a very long time. Here's where the jobs were. Leisure and hospitality gaining almost 600,000 jobs. It's a lot of jobs, but it's also a slowdown from uh, from June. Government adding 301,000. Part of that was a seasonal adjustment. Teachers were expected to have been let go in this month. Instead, they were let go in April, so it didn't show up, so it ended up being higher. Retail coming back again, 258,000. Education and health services, where some of the doctor's offices that have been closed have reopened. And temporary help, 144,000. Uh, it seems like employers decided to bring back at least some workers on a temporary basis rather than 
full time. Now, the U.S. economy has come a long way back when it's come to a hiring, but it still has a very long way to go. Looking at the last three months, we have gained 9 million jobs back. There's still 13 million left to go after those two big losses in both March and April. Two indicators giving an idea of how much permanent damage is being done in the labor market. The first is the uh, those who have left the workforce. 4.7 million have left the workforce since the pandemic began, and there are 1.6 million permanent job losers. Both are about where they were in June, suggesting that uh, there's been some ebbing of the improvement that we've seen in the job market. Ian Shepherdson writes from Pantheon Economics, he says, it's a relief, the jobs number is, but August will be weaker. No V here. Andrew Hunter from Capital Economics, however, says the recovery remains intact despite the virus resurgence. Among the new concerns of economists, if there is no additional relief, that could prompt a new round of layoffs in August, and they'll be watching out for that. Steve Leisman, CNBC Business News. Thank you, Steve. Okay, well, let's have a quick look at the uh, the close. Uh, this is how we ended the session on Friday here. And even though there were one or two numbers in that non-farm payrolls report that do raise concerns like the participation rate, broadly, the markets on Friday welcomed the overall direction of the headline number and said, okay, that's fine. That's good enough for us to continue to believe that there is still uh, some grounds for optimism around the recovery in the economy. So we ended up with the Dow and the S&P, these broader measures of economic activity in the United States, just closing the session in positive territory. Let's have a quick look at the uh, Treasury market, if we might here. Just uh, worth noting, I guess, the 10-year yield here, just a, a little higher, but overall, um, we still continue to see uh, yields very suppressed across the uh, Treasury curve here. What about the greenback? What's that doing? I know the Asian markets at this hour always focus fairly closely on the action in the uh, dollar. And as you can see, just a little bit of weakness as we look at the dollar against sterling, the euro, also uh, a little bit weaker against the uh, yen and the yuan at this stage. In terms of the uh, Asian market session, let's just roll the boards again. A couple of things to tell you about on the Asian session. One is uh, uh, clearly the fact that we don't see the Nikkei up here. Just to point out to you, it is mountain day in Japan, where, uh, you know, the Japanese workforce, uh, again, being uh, forced by the government effectively to take a bank holiday. This is the 16th Uh, bank holiday in Japan and an opportunity to celebrate nature there. Singapore also not trading, of course. It's a bit of a mixed call on the other markets. We got some uh, inflation data out of China. I guess the best you can probably say about the inflation data is that uh, we are seeing a slowing in factory deflation. Uh, When it comes to the core uh, CPI, though, uh, it is the lowest since 2010. July Chinese CPI in in at 2.7%, with food inflation at 13.2%. And Hong Kong, um, good reasons why we're seeing Hong Kong a little bit weaker. We'll tell you more about that a little bit later on. But effectively, Carrie Lam, the leader in Hong Kong, and a number of other members of the government were sanctioned by the United States over the weekend. And that continues to reverberate around Hong Kong alongside the arrest of uh, Jimmy Lai, a notable democratic business figure. 
Anyhow, we will uh, circle back to some of these stories a little bit later on. Uh, This one, I think, is uh, worth uh, just keeping an eye on. Warren Buffett has bought back over $5 billion worth of Berkshire Hathaway shares. That's the highest ever repurchase over a single period. Nearly all of Berkshire's operations have been affected by the pandemic. As second quarter operating profits fell by 10%, the company also announced a $10 billion write-down on its aircraft parts business. However, the company did see strong share price gains in key investments such as Apple, Amazon and JP Morgan. So notable, uh, even as there obviously were those significant write-downs from Berkshire Hathaway, he couldn't find anything else that he wanted to spend that $5 billion on. We'll take the break. Coming up, TikTok may strike back at the Trump administration as soon as Tuesday, as it reportedly is preparing a lawsuit saying the White House's ban is unconstitutional. We'll have more on that story in a moment. And do check out the podcast if you want to hear more about the current market moves. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on cnbc.com. A very good morning, everybody, as the sun comes up here in London. Let's get you caught up on the latest on coronavirus. Cases in the United States have now topped 5 million over the weekend as the pandemic shows no signs of slowing down. India has also reported a spike in cases, taking the country's total number to over 2 million. This as community health workers went on strike over poor wages and the lack of protective equipment. In Australia, they've reported their biggest rise in daily virus deaths as officials struggle to contain the outbreak in the second largest state of Victoria. Well, as the US struggles to contain rising infections, some states continue to see large gatherings despite strict social distancing measures. NBC's Kathy Parks explains. Tonight, the coronavirus crisis deepening, with the country hitting 5 million cases. These five states combined, making up more than 40% of the infections, including California, where the death toll topped 10,000. This morning in Ventura County, screaming, slapping, and shoving during a clash ahead of church where pro-mass demonstrators had gathered. Emotions running high at Godspeed Calvary Chapel, where they're defying statewide orders with indoor services. This government doesn't give us our rights. God gave us these rights. 
In the hotspot state of Texas, health officials reported a record high positivity rate, climbing since the end of July. In Georgia, where this back-to-school photo went viral, showing students shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder in the hallway, the principal now says the school will be closed tomorrow and Tuesday after six students and three staff members at North Paulding High School have tested positive for the virus. The school had suspended Hannah Waters, who initially posted the images, then reversed their decision. I knew walking in masks weren't mandatory, but I kind of... I did trust them to keep us safe. And more questions tonight about the fate of college sports. The Big Ten announcing they'll slow down preseason football practices with no pads or full contact among athletes. This after the Mid-American Conference postponed all fall sports. Analysts believe the fallout is just beginning. I don't think we'll have a season in the fall. I hope I'm wrong. I pray I'm wrong. But um, there's just too many challenges. It's like trying to thread a needle from 100 yards. There's too many things that can go wrong. But the pandemic is not slowing down the annual Sturgis Motorcycle Rally, where people pack Main Street, bars, and concert venues. Nobody wants to be the guinea pig. Right, right. But we're going to see. It could go right, it could go wrong. We're, we're going to find out. Uh, TikTok is reportedly planning to sue the Trump administration as soon as Tuesday in a challenge to the president's executive order, which threatens to outlaw transactions with the popular Chinese-owned video sharing app. That, according to NPR, Trump's order will come in force, uh, come into force within 45 days, unless the U.S. assets of TikTok are sold to an American company. Microsoft has confirmed it's in talks with TikTok's parent ByteDance to buy some of its operations. Twitter has also expressed interest in buying TikTok's U.S. operations, according to Reuters, but some experts have raised doubts over whether the social media group would be able to put together sufficient financing to go up against Microsoft. Twitter has a market cap of about $30 billion, less than some valuations of TikTok's U.S. businesses. China's factory deflation eased in July, but producer prices still fell 2.4% from the year earlier, marking the sixth consecutive month of declines. Uh, Sam, what does this tell us then about the state of recovery from the lockdown in China? Good morning to you, Jeff. I mean, factory deflation was certainly expected to ease in the month of July as domestic demand in China has certainly been holding up well amid this boost in infrastructure spending by the government, which economists say is certainly being used to mitigate some of these external uh, pressures. Uh, but also, uh, as we saw this rebound in commodity prices, particularly oil, uh, which is said to have helped uh, ease pressure for manufacturers, which uh, we have been hearing have been operating in much uh, weaker capacities with much fewer staff than pre-coronavirus days. So I would say that this headline number uh, certainly sort of points to signs of improvement uh, in terms of the recovery in the world's second biggest economy. But, you know, even with these signals that things are getting better and that China's economic recovery 
is picking up speed. Economists have certainly said that uh, a negative reading when it comes to this PPI is uh, certainly expected to be uh, the new norm, at least in the short term, as we have seen, uh, you know, global demand taking a hit. And we are now seeing a spike in cases around the world and further lockdowns, uh, which they warned could potentially uh, stall the recovery, certainly in the coming months. As far as the uh, headline consumer inflation for July is concerned, that rose 2.7% a year on year from June's two and a half percent as more people uh, in China have certainly been going out and uh, that is leading to you know rising demand for things like China's favorite meat which is pork and also vegetables but severe flooding uh, that we've seen in torrential rain in China in recent months has certainly uh, taken a hit to to those uh, supplies of pork and vegetables uh, which has been driving the prices up and pork prices uh, actually uh, rose over 85 percent on a yearly basis now uh, as far as the Chinese markets are concerned they but mostly mixed off the back of this uh, inflation data today. Investors perhaps waiting for that big data drop on Friday, uh, including you know retail sales and industrial output to, for further clues about this uh, economic recovery. We are seeing uh, the major indices in the green actually at the moment. The Shenzhen Composite up around uh, a quarter of a percent. The Shanghai Composite also edging higher. Uh, it's a mixed picture in terms of the sectors today, but I do just want to draw your attention to, to healthcare in particular because investors have been largely you know betting on health stocks in China amid, uh, you know, this race to find a COVID-19 vaccine. But the sector is pulling back today after a report actually said that companies face correction risks as their overall values uh, are high with the healthcare index actually something uh, as much as over 3%, uh, still though it is up uh, over 50% for the year amid the pandemic. Another interesting stock I think is worth noting is uh, Kingfast Scientech, uh, which is a plastic maker in China. Uh, it's seen its shares slump today after it said its unit had scrapped a major contract uh, which would see over $900 million worth of medical supplies going to the US, uh, including masks. Now, speaking of that, of course, we are keeping across these rising US-China tensions, which has certainly been weighing on sentiment uh, over on the market. And of course, we've got the US uh, Health Secretary uh, Alex Azar in, uh, in Taiwan today, despite Beijing's protests, which sets a pretty tense backdrop uh, for these trade talks later this week. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.